Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a five-time NFL Pro Bowler, Irving Fryer. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a five-time NFL Pro Bowler. He's a member of the Patriots' 50th anniversary team, and I recently got to join him on his podcast, The Fryer Place. You can check it out on iHeart and YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, Irving Fryer. Irving, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, man. This is big time. I was telling you, last week I was telling the audience I got to do uh, Irving's Irving's podcast. We got to know each other. Payback's a bitch. Now I got him on mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but one one hand, look, iron sharpens iron. One hand washes the other. We take care of one another. Very cool. Uh, what age did Irving Fryer realize you were a little bit different than the other kids athletically? <laughs> Well, I I knew it when I was young. I mean, um, I played football in the streets. We played touch football in the street. Uh, And um, it was rough touch. But I was always, you know, around the age of 10, 11 years old, I was out there playing with 16, 17, 15-year-old teenagers. And uh, as you know, everybody knows there's a big difference when you're that age. And, you know, four or five years is a big difference. But I was out there able to hang around and, and play and score touchdowns and, and, and frustrate the uh, the older kids. So I knew uh, at that point that I could go out in those aspects in terms of football and baseball and basketball and go out and play with anybody. Grew up in, in uh, New Jersey, Jersey kid. We're both from New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, I was from the Cherry Hill. Well, I was actually from Medford. You were uh, Mount Holly Township. Yeah, right, right down the street. Yeah, South Jersey guy, right across, right, right by the uh, Walt Whitman Bridge. They yeah. take take us over to take <laughs> us over to Philly. We'll get to Philly a little bit later. They're, they did it. They're in the series. They're in, They're the, in series. the series, man. Uh, again, I had you do a prediction <laughs> at the end of my show. What's your prediction? My pre- oh for the World Series? Yeah. Do you think they can win? I mean, everybody I, has them I, losing. That's why I think. You know, baseball is baseball because you just never know. Yeah. On on paper, uh, Houston's too good, Irving. I, right, I, right. I love it. They're just too good. But anything can happen. And, and the electricity I see right now in Philadelphia, I, you know, I grew up there and I remember my dad played there. Uh-huh. And when that city gets rocking and look at the Eagles right now, Eagles are undefeated. That city's going crazy. So I I never underestimate uh, the intricacies of sport. But (laughs) once again, (laughs) as an analyst, I look at this on paper. This Houston team is too much superior. And and, and it's not a ding on on Philadelphia. I think they're they're in. Right. They're just they're just so much better. And with the only other team I can see pound for pound that can match this Houston team is not not the postseason anymore. That was the L.A. Dodgers. They got knocked okay. out by the Padres. But right. them that withstanding them not being there, I, I just don't see how anybody can beat this this team top to bottom from starting pitching to. Well, look, look at the divine appointment in this all. Now, next Thursday, the Eagles are playing the Texans down in Houston. And right. Friday, 
the Phillies are playing the Astros. I mean, you yep. can't you can't make that stuff up, man. It's it's <laughs> it's going to be fun to watch. You know, part of me part of me is going to be pu- pulling for Philly. You know, I've got a a few buddies that still uh, are in their front offices, and and I'm sure Dad and a, is going to be uh, right. silently rooting for Philly, but it, it'll be it'll be a fun series uh, either way you slice it. Uh, Plus, the Astros beat your brother, so we want them to lose. They didn't only really beat them; they beat the crap out of them. <laughs> <laughs> that was a rough one. I told Aaron, I said, "Take a vacation, baby. Take a vacation, you, you, deserve, you deserve it. Go, go where nobody can recognize you." <laughs> nah, he's oh, wow. going to be he's going to be fine. They just, you know, they were. And once again, it's it's not a not, it's not a knock on New York. New York wasn't they weren't at full capacity. They had a couple key guys that were out with injury right. that the the bullpen had been decimated from the beginning of the year. But that's that's just baseball. And if you if you look at it, it, it would have been I would have been shocked if the Yankees overcame that Houston ball club, but uh, they didn't. And and we'll see. It'll be exciting World Series. Yes, uh, what was Irving Fryer like as a little kid? Oh, man, I was running around being ornery, <laughs> driving my mother and my father nuts. I was uh, the only boy. I have a, a sister that's older and a sister that's younger, Faith and Hope. Faith is older. Hope is younger. And I was the only boy. So, uh, wow. Yeah, I had um, I had I was a loose cannon. I guess you could say that I did well in school. I always did well in school because if I didn't do well in school, my mother would beat the crap out of me. But uh, <laughs> but I was I was uh not real interested in school. I got good grades in school because again, my mother of uh, my mother, she would beat the crap out of me if I didn't. So I always paid attention, but I was, I guess the, the, the one thing that I can focus on in terms of remembering myself as a kid, it still applies today. And that is that I was very competitive. One of the reasons I was very good in school. Or I got good grades in school was because I couldn't stand uh, when someone I knew in my class got a better grade than me. So everything for me when I was a kid was a competition. So whatever I did, I did uh, all out full speed. So whether it was sports, whether it was in the classroom, whether it was uh, playing marbles with my sisters, <laughs> whatever it was, um, I had to win. I was very competitive. You mentioned uh, at the top baseball and we talked about it on on uh, your podcast that you had a little bit of a fondness for baseball what obviously the the road you went down what you pursued the career you had wasn't baseball but as a kid were there other sports other than football was was football was your first love oh no not not by any stretch of the imagination you know i started playing baseball um when i was about seven years old uh, my father was my coach that year. That was the only time he coached me. My father loved baseball. If he was still alive today, he would be ecstatic about what's happening with the Phillies. He would sit and watch the Phillies every time they played. I, I don't know how, how he could sit for so long. It just I mean, he knew what was going on all the time with the Phillies. Um, but my father was a big baseball fan, and I started out playing baseball. I didn't play football until I actually got into high school, but I played baseball from seven seven years old all the way through high school. And um, most of the people, if you would ask them, if you come back to Mount Holly and the people that know me, uh, the people that actually saw me grow up, they would probably tell you that they thought I would be a professional baseball player, not necessarily a professional football player. Because I football, I mean, baseball came a lot easier to me and I played it for a lot longer. So, um, you know, that was, that was my sport uh, was baseball. Um, I played a little basketball, ran a little track, 
and then played football when I got into high school. But um, but baseball was my first love. Um, I'm in the record books at my high school for I don't know if it's batting average or whatever it is, but something like that. But I was I was a decent baseball player. What position? Uh, I pitched, <laughs> and I was a uh, center fielder. But you know, throughout from seven you know seven years old all the way up into high school, you know, I played at all the positions except for catcher at some point in time. Um, I didn't like the pitch. I could pitch pretty well, um, but I loved to play center field. I didn't like the pitch. My coach in high school and I, we would argue all of the time. And uh, this is bad. I'm going to tell you this, but this is bad. (laughs) This kind of lets you know how I was when I was a kid. When I didn't want to pitch and he made me pitch, I would go up and I start hitting batters. Right, on purpose. <laughs> on well, purpose. You, and he take me out. <laughs> well, that that makes sense, though. I mean, you know, the kids in, in baseball arena coming up, you're always, uh, you know, most of the guys that pursue it and end up, they, at one time, they were always a shortstop, and they right. always pitched. Because yeah, the best athlete yeah. when we were kids always were pitching. Always pitchers, yeah. On the football <laughs> side, and I've had uh, a lot of NFL guys on the program, and we know them from their career by a certain position, we know the quarterbacks, wide receivers, uh, you know, we had Anthony Munoz on the great lineman, yeah. but it's not always that the position that we know you as were you always what, what position you play in, in uh, high school football? Well, high school, we ran uh, Bill Gordon was our coach. God rest his soul. Uh, he's going on to be with the Lord, um, but he was actually Franco Harris's coach as well. So he coached at Rancocas Valley Regional High School for many, many years. And uh, we ran a wing tee. That's ob- obviously obsolete now. <laughs> There's no such thing as a wing tee anymore. But on offense, I was pretty much, and I played during the time when, you know, players played offense, defense, and stayed on the field for special teams, didn't come off the field. So I, on offense, I was I was a tight end pretty much in the wing tee. I blocked. I was not split out. I was not in the two-point stance. I didn't catch many balls. I uh, did have some balls thrown to me, but uh, was more of a blocker than anything else. I was being recruited out of high school. Uh, I was a blue chip All-American safety. Um, interceptions for touchdowns, and I was also a punt returner. A lot of punt, punt returners, punt, punt returns for touchdowns in high school. So I was being recruited across the nation as a safety, as a defensive back. Uh, decided to go to the University of Nebraska, Mike Rozier and myself. Uh, my second or third practice at Nebraska, uh, Coach Osborne uh, asked me to go over and just try offense, just see what you're going to do. And I ended up staying on offense. He didn't change me back. I stayed and I played wing back. And with, that's another uh, something that I don't quite get is that I played wing back in college and I was drafted as a wide receiver. I was more of a back than I was a wide receiver. So I had to really learn. Um, thank God there wasn't a lot of passing going on when I was uh when I was drafted, but I had to learn how to be a wide receiver because I was more of a back than I was a wide receiver. That's interesting. You went to the University of Nebraska. You mentioned Coach Coach Osborne. Mm-hmm. Why Why Nebraska? Well, there there were a couple of different reasons. Um, number Number one, uh, Mike Rozier, as I mentioned, um, he's from Camden, Heisman Trophy winner in nineteen eighty three. Camden. Uh, oh, I remember Camden. They had they had some serious hoop, yeah, hoop going on yeah, back when yeah. I when I was growing up there. All right, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. He he played it uh played football at Woodrow Wilson. And matter of fact, they the uh football field is named after Mike now. Um but he and I grew up together. His grandmother was his grandmother, yeah, his grandmother lived right next door to where we lived. 
Uh, our mothers grew up together. Our fathers worked in the same uh, foundry for like 25 years. So we knew each other. And um, as we got older and got into high school, we started being recruited by the same schools. So um, I really didn't want to go to school. I was I was sick of school. <laughs> I didn't want to go and have to study for tests and do that kind of stuff anymore. I had a couple of uncles who were in the Marines. My interest was to go into the Marines once I graduated from high school and follow, take after my uncles. I wanted to go into in the Marines and fly airplanes off of aircraft carriers. I was very intrigued by airplanes. I had a, a deep interest in it, and that's what I wanted to do. But because I've been been recruited uh, to these major colleges and no one in my family had ever gone to college before, my mother, <laughs> again, my mother, you need to go to college. So I went where Mike went. Really, that's what I told all of the recruiters. I told them, I said, listen, you don't need to recruit me. You need to recruit Mike. Wherever Mike goes, that's where I'm going. Um, and I also believe one of the deciding factors was, you know, you had all these coaches coming and promising this and promising that. A lot of them were flashy. But Co Coach Osborne came. Uh, Frank Solich originated the uh, recruiting process. But when Coach Osborne finally came, he came and he sat in our living room and he drank uh, the Kool-Aid I made. Uh, and then he, he listened to my sister play the piano. I mean, he was there for hours just, um, you know, just making himself at home. And my mother felt really comfortable around him. And just like with Mike, his mother felt the same way. They said, you know what? This is somebody we don't mind you being around. We, we feel comfortable with him. We feel like if anything goes wrong, he's going to have your back. And that was kind of the, the, the deciding factor was Tom came and he really spent some quality time with me and with my family. Very cool. It, Nebraska, a far cry from Jersey, much well, yeah, different. I, I was a little bit, and, and this played a little part in it too. I was, I was, I didn't have a problem with Mike choosing Nebraska. He actually made the decision. He had it narrowed down to Pittsburgh, the university of Pittsburgh or Nebraska, but Mike had to go to a Juco uh, prior to him going to the actual university. So I believe Nebraska had a better Juco program in Coffeeville, Kansas. So he chose uh, Nebraska. And I was happy about that because I was really a, a little bit upset with my mother. <laughs> I wanted to go, okay, if you're going to make me go away, I'm going away as far as I can. So, <laughs> so I was, I was pretty pleased with the fact that I was in the Midwest where, you know, she couldn't get to me and I couldn't get to her and she would miss me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it cause when, when we have uh, baseball players on baseball and the NFL, different NFL kind of, right. College Division One College uh, is kind of the minor leagues for the NFL, whereas baseball you have actual minor leagues. Uh, right. For right. me, coming out of coming out of high school, you know, I was a late draft pick, 29th round. Uh, really wasn't. I was going to USC. Uh, really wasn't an option. You know, the money wasn't an option. It was so small. Uh -huh. I wanted. Believe me, I was like you. I had different ideas than going to college. I wasn't. There you go. This big student guy, but I knew that was the best road for me to get to where I wanted to be, and that was the major leagues. And since the draft pick wasn't high enough to really. Uh, you know, I'm looking at a USC scholarship and what they're offered me and it didn't make any sense, but if it right. were up to me, Oh, I wanted to be a high pick. I wanted to, I wanted to sign. I wanted to go professionally looking back on it. Uh, the best decision I ever made was to go to college because we don't realize it at the time I was 18 years old. I thought yeah. I was the greatest player in the world and <laughs> just ask me and I'll tell you. Uh, but I had a lot of growing up to do and, and I got, 
I got to go away, but I was still close enough. You know, mom could could whip up on the weekends and bring me some bring me some meals and, and uh-huh. do my laundry for me. Uh-huh. Yet yet then she'd leave and I could do my thing, you know, do, right, do what we right. do in college. Yes, chase, gir- chase girls. And, <laughs> and uh, but it, it, I found that three years later, my junior year, when I signed, I was so much a better prepared, not uh-huh. only physically. Yeah, I filled out a little bit. I was stronger. I, was, I went into college as a, as a kid. I came out as a young man and uh-huh. I was ready for that challenge of professional baseball. And I got through the minor leagues really quick. I don't know that that would have happened if I was 18. You know, I, I kind of right. didn't know what pro ball consisted of. And it, I think college for me was a segue. It getting away from home, the the, right. the competition's better, but it's not a job yet. You know, I still right. could be a kid and go to class and 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 do that whole social thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's applicable in in any aspect when you talk about you know life and the process of life, going from childhood to teen, being a teenager, then into adulthood. That whole college scene does prepare you whether you're going to play sports and play at another level, or whether you're going, like you said, to get a job. And now you're becoming responsible and you're doing your nine to five or you're trying to start your own company. That whole college scene prepares you for that and gives you that uh, that time you need to develop that time. You need to come up with a clear plan about what you want to do, maybe not for the rest of your life, but at least for the next 10 years of your life coming out of college. Uh, football at the University of Nebraska. You were an All-American in 83. Uh, you went to a few Orange Bowls. I think you went to three. Uh, yeah, we, 80, we lost 80, three national championships in a row. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the final one, wasn't it on that two-point conversion? Yes, it was the last play of the you game. You went that's, for it, and it didn't work that's, out. That's a uh, There's a story to that. that um, because when we ran that play, it was it was almost like they knew what we were doing. It, it was really strange. They, they, the the back was supposed. Jeff Smith was supposed to come out of the backfield. Mike Rosier had gotten hurt earlier in the game. Jeff Smith was supposed to run out of the backfield to the right. The wide receiver who was out to my right, I was at the wing back position. He was supposed to come and hook up behind him, and I was supposed to rub the linebacker to to cause a little bit of interference so Jeff could get the ball. Well, when the ball was snapped, the linebacker was gone. He was gone before I could ever get to where a place on the field to rub him to cause any interference and, and went and knocked the ball down from Jeff. So come to find out now I go into the pros. Uh, I played with new England for nine years. Now I'm in Miami. My first year in Miami, I'm on the practice field and a coach by the name of Oliver Dolly, Lou Oliver Dolly come Oliver Dolly comes up to me. Uh, he's the defensive coordinator at the uh, Miami dolphins. And he says, Urban, how you, how you doing? I'm doing fine coach. He said, you remember that Miami game? When you were in Nebraska, I'm like, yeah, we went for two. He said, listen, I was the all uh, defensive coordinator on the Hurricanes at that time. I was like, oh, yeah? He said, yeah, you know how we defended that play? I said, yeah, I would like to know how you defended that play because you did a good job. Uh, he said, we went back and we watched film of every game you played, you guys played that year, and you went for two one time, and that's the play you ran. Wow. Yeah. So I found out almost 10 years later right. why, right. why we lost the national championship. You were expecting him to say because we were in the huddle. <laughs> yeah, so, something like that. Something right. like that. And I told him, I said it was strange because it was like they knew exactly what we were going to do. And they did. They did. They guessed right. This is an interesting thing to me that, that uh, I watch on TV, especially from the football standpoint. Uh, and if I were to kind of correlate it to baseball, I think I, I'm always from the – from the belief that 
you live to play another day. So so it's like, well, no, we're going to we're going to start our number three guy on Thursday. If we lose, we'll go to our number one guy. I'm always the no. Let's live to get to the next day. I'm going to put my best out at all time. I've always been that way. If if you've got runners on first and second in a one run game or a tie game, especially Mm -hmm. a tie game. I still like and and today's game baseball is much different. I think it's getting different across the board. All the major sports is we're getting pretty analytical these days. Right, right, right. But I'm from the 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 thought process of okay, I want to bunt in that situation. Bunt. There you go. That's I right. want to get runners on second and third. There so the go. next guy, all he has to do, he might be able to hit a ground ball to short, a pop fly that scores the run. I'm not I'm not going for two. I'm not doing that on the football side. You get into that <laughs> position, you know the national championships on the line. Right. You you can kick the extra point and you know you're tied. We're tied, live- and we and we were undefeated. If we had tied it, we right. would we would have won national championship. So to but- make that decision when that comes down from the head coach, <laughs> what's going through your brain? Like I can't believe he's going for it, or no, we're going to get this two point, and we're going to win it. No, we were all in two points. Let's go for it. We never hesitated. We never doubted him. I don't. I never doubted the the call until this day. I still don't doubt it. Um, I'm with it 100. percent We did not want to back into which some people would call it back into the uh, the national championship. We were undefeated that whole year. We were ranked number one when the year started before the first game was ever played. Uh, we went undefeated that whole year. We were 12 and 0 and we wanted to stay that way. So uh, yeah, it was, it was there. It was very dramatic. Trust me. I didn't come out of my hotel room for a couple of days. Wow. <laughs> and, I, and it's still, it, it still haunts. Cause I, I had actually dropped the ball I dropped two balls that year, and in that game, I dropped the ball that I probably would have scored on. Uh, it didn't. It ended up not making a difference, and it was in the drive that we scored to get down by one point. Um, and I, that still haunts me to this day, man. I mean, there's there's probably not a week that goes by that uh, that doesn't flash in my mind. Eighty four drafts coming up. You're the you're one one uh, number one overall pick. Uh, I had Drew Bledsoe on the show. He talked to me a little bit about that and and the expectations uh, going into that draft for him, what it was like to be a 1-1. How'd you prepare for the draft? Because uh, unlike baseball, uh, football's had a combine for a lot of years now. I think at the time when when you went, it was only in, uh, it only been going on for a few years, but take me through that combine. Actually, baseball uh, this year, or, or last year, I think was the first year they implemented it, but they're trying to take, uh, take the suggestions from the NFL and they're starting their right. own combine. It's a little weird for us baseball players because there's never been a combine. We watch you guys on TV, watch ESPN. Yeah, the NFL combine's going on. Well, baseball, we don't have one. Now, all right. of a sudden, they're trying to implement it. They're doing the box jumps and and all that stuff. I got to go down to, to Petco Park this year and be a part of the uh, the MLB telecast and watch these kids, man, the athleticism, it's getting so much better. Uh, just the raw talent in these, in these kids, it seems like they're getting bigger. They're getting stronger. They're getting faster, but it's mm-hmm. interesting that they're doing it. The football combines always been in place or, or for a lot of years now. Right, uh, right. What was your, what was your preparation leading up to draft day? Well, mom was a little bit different, but let me go back a little bit because um, th- you know, that's big money right now. That's big TV. The combines, I mean, that's turned into social media and media in itself have turned, the, the NFL have turned it and used it 
in mighty ways. So they're making a lot of money. You know, you see people just, you know, it. people are sitting and watching the combines and some of these athletes are foregoing their bowl games so they can train specifically for the combine to run a faster 40, to have a higher uh, vertical jump, to do certain things, you know, better bench press. They're, they're taking a month before the combines and they're training for the combines, which to me does not transfer necessarily over to the football field. You know, just because I can jump high, just because I can run a 40, that doesn't mean I can catch the ball. You know, how do you play football? So uh, I think the combines, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, are a little bit overrated, a little bit overrated. Um, but they're great TV, and, and they do a good job of doing it. Now, when I first came out uh, into the league in 1984, the combine, even the draft, it wasn't all the hoopla and the TV the way it is now. And not as much attention was paid or given uh, to those uh, events. Um, but for me, I didn't... I prepare for the combine just by going through winter conditioning at Nebraska. You know, we would have a conditioning program that started a couple of weeks after the season was over at last until spring, the spring game. And I went through the winter conditioning. But unbeknownst to me, my junior year, when the pro scouts, before our senior year started in the summer after my junior year, the pro scouts came to our winter conditioning program and they timed uh, the seniors in the 40. So they timed me in the 40. And the first 40, I think I ran 427. Uh, and then they were looking at me like, nah, that's not right. That's not, go run again. So I ran again, I ran 421. <laughs> so they said, okay, that's enough. We, we believe you. I get to the combine and they tell me, and this is, this is strange because I ended up being the first pick in the draft. They said, listen, you don't have to do anything. You just come and you watch, you take your physical. You don't have to do anything. So I didn't do anything at the combine. I got my physical. And that was it. I watched the other guys long jump and broad jump and high jump and, and bench press and run 40s. And I didn't have to do it. That was I mean, I'm sorry I blew up your question. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I think that's but, just as interesting. Because but that was weird. That was weird for me now that I, you know, now that I sit back now and I see how things are done. You know, even then, you know, that was I'd never heard of that before uh, where a guy doesn't have to go and run his 40. And I guess because my 40 was so fast and because I had done what I had done on the field, they knew that I could play ball. But yet and still, yet and still, I was drafted and made a wide receiver. I wasn't a wide receiver. I was a punt returner. So I, I did, you know, I punt, returned punts for the first eight years of my career. As I was a starter wide receiver, I was also the starting punt returner. Um, but I was not a receiver. I was a wingback. I did a lot of blocking. I didn't, you know, my one-on-ones during practice in college was blocking a defensive end that was standing over top of me or coming down and blocking a linebacker. Those were my one-on-ones in college. I didn't run one-on-one pass patterns against a defensive back. So all of that was new. I relied strictly my first two, maybe three years in the NFL. I had to rely strictly on athletic ability. I, I didn't have any kind of technique, didn't come from a passing type office. You got these cats to come out of Ohio State or Alabama now that are wide receivers. Man, they're running a pro style uh, offense in college. They come right into the NFL and don't miss a beat. There's no learning curve for them. They step right in and they know what they're, do they're doing. For me, I had to learn how to be a wide receiver. And I think, too, you know, from the, if anything, it, it was when they brought you to the combine and they said, hey, you don't have to do it. It, it was kind of like a badge of honor, like, wow, 
they already know I'm this good. I mean, obviously the the conclusion had already been come to. It's like right, right, yeah. Because like anything in life, you know, the top top guys. You know, I take a modern day baseball player, a Mike Trout. Uh, I'll guarantee you, if the draft was Mike Trout's draft was next week, and he went to a baseball combine and kind of went into it, kind of half assed it, I'll guarantee he'd still be the first pick. Right. There's right, some guys that right. they, they so ex, they so exceed the norm that no, it doesn't matter. All right, if you had a bad combine, you had a bad day. But for the masses, the combine is probably a make or break. Like, hey, you're on the bubble. We think you're right around here. Let's see how you do in the combine, and that'll right. solidify it, or it'll drop you a few rounds, maybe. And and again, as I as I mentioned earlier, I mean, for the most part, that's accurate for the most part. But you have guys who come to the combines coming out of college who come in and have a so-so combine and then end up doing very well in the, uh, in the draft or do very well once, once they get on the field in the NFL, have long careers and play, play at a high level. Um, so again, yes, how high you can jump. Yes. How fast you can run. Yes. How quickly you can do the shuttle run and change, uh, change direction, how that makes a difference. But, it doesn't it doesn't equal everything when it comes to playing the actual game. Yeah, I'm sure you look at players and you go, I don't care what he did in the, the high jump. I don't care what he did. That guy's a football player right play. there. That's right. That guy's play. a football player right there. Yeah. Uh, so New England, number one, uh, you're headed to New England. Uh, Raymond Berry, I believe, is at the helm. Um, anybody take you under their wing? You know what? That's a good question, Brett. Because no. Wow. <laughs> well, well, let me let me explain. Let me explain. It was it was a struggle. Again, it was a struggle for me. My first, particularly my first year. Um, actually, yes, Raymond Barry was the head coach, but Raymond didn't come in until about halfway through my rookie year. Ron Meyer, Ron Myers, he was the one. He was the head coach when I was drafted. He was okay. the coach. Um, so at the beginning of the season, Ron was the head coach and Ron and Stanley Morgan, Stanley Morgan was the, uh, the star wide receiver there. Ron and Stanley were having problems and then Ron drafts me. So Stanley's thinking, okay, Ron's trying to get rid of me. And that was the word. That was the rumor that Ron and Stanley weren't getting along. And so Ron had drafted Irving Fryer and Ron's going to get rid of Stanley. So Stanley didn't like me. When I got there, Stanley didn't speak to me. My whole rookie year, Stanley didn't want to have anything to do with me. Um, then about halfway through my rookie year, Raymond Berry comes in. Ron Meyer gets fired. Raymond Berry comes in. And Ron Myers had me on the same side. We were both playing X receiver. Stanley and I were playing split receiver. So obviously Ron was trying to ease me in and push Stanley out. Well, when Raymond got there, Raymond put me on the other side. So now Stanley and I are playing together at the same time, rather than me trying to trying to take take Stanley's place. The damage had already been done. Stanley was still mad at me, but uh, at least we were both playing. Then my second year, I was able to uh, at least have a conversation with Stanley and, and, and get some information from him in terms of uh, how to play the position of wide receiver. But what I did... Because of that, what I ended up doing was just watching. You know, I would watch Stanley and I would watch what he did to escape off the line of scrimmage. I would watch what he did uh, as he was running down the field and stacking the, the defensive back and how he made his breaks. And Stanley was a little bit smaller than me. I was just as fast as him. So I learned by watching, particularly uh, my first few years uh, in, in New England. Now, remember, 
or let me just tell you, New England didn't throw the ball. My first nine years in New England, we didn't throw the ball that much. Uh, we weren't a, a high-powered, you know, like the offenses now. They weren't, it wasn't that type of football back then. Um, and particularly us, when, when I got drafted a year before that, New England was number one in rushing. Mosey Tutupu, Tony Collins, and then Craig James. So we were running the ball first. Um, so I really didn't get the best out of myself where I really didn't become, at least in my opinion, I didn't become a, I didn't start reaching my potential as a wide receiver until I went to Miami. Now, you know, down in Miami, you got Dan Marino and, and, you know, Duper brother, Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, the Marks brothers, they were throwing the ball all over the place. So I really, it was like I died and went to heaven when I went to Miami because it was a pass first run second type of uh, offensive scheme. And with it, you you know, I, I, I've never been able to kind of wrap my head around the, the logic that you were just talking about coming in and a teammate. I mean, you're coming in. Probably it's different for you because you're one one and you know how that is. You walk in. Oh, here's the number one pick. Right. Some guys right. are going to welcome you and go, hey, awesome that we got this guy. Other guy. Who's he think he is? He's got to He's got to earn his stripes. But I never could really wrap my head around the veteran player not embracing the next in line. I, I remember late in my career in Seattle, we had a young second baseman coming up. You know, I was 35 years old and, and I had a great run. I knew that my time in Seattle was coming to an end. I might play somewhere else. Uh -huh. uh, I might not. But I did everything. I remember that final year, uh, did everything I could to help that, that second baseman coming up. He right. wasn't a threat right. to me. Right. It, it didn't matter to me. It's like, no, it's he's the gonna process. Be, That's the right? way it goes. Yeah. He's going to be in the big leagues at some point. Right. Uh, whether I'm here or not. Uh, and I'm moving on and somebody's got to play. So why wouldn't I reach out? And I remember reaching out and, and trying to help him as much as he as I possibly could. Whenever he had a question, I'd say, here's what here's what I've learned. Here's the mistakes I made. Don't make these mistakes. And I actually when I left, I started watching him from from afar. I was no longer with the Mariners and I was pulling for him like, mm -hmm. man, it, maybe I could be a tiny bit of, of this guy's career, helping him a little bit. I right. never understood that the cold shoulder and, and the threat that people feel, I guess it's a real thing. You just explained it, but I, I, I can never really wrap my head around that. Well, it was, I think it was just a different era. It was a different time and there were different mentalities, obviously, obviously back then. I mean, because Stanley wasn't the only one that didn't speak to me <laughs> my rookie year. There were well, other it was probably Stanley's buddies weren't speaking well, either. Well, these, some of these guys were on defense. Well, and the reason is this, at least this was the reason they gave me. So uh, in the preseason, one of the preseason games, um, we're down in Washington and we're playing and I caught a ball across the middle. I got tackled and I landed on the ball. My ribs landed on the ball. So I, I cracked a rib. So I ended up uh, missing about four games with that cracked rib. Uh, so then I'm starting it, you know, I'm playing, I'm starting returning punts and all. Then about, I think it was maybe halfway through the season, my rookie year, I missed about eight games, uh, about half the season. And then I, uh, I dislocated my shoulder. I was returning a punt. And no, I was actually blocking from Mosi to Tupu and Mosi landed on my shoulder. I was on the ground kind of with my arms out. and He landed right on my shoulder and dislocated my shoulder. So I missed another four games. So I played maybe half the season uh, my rookie year. So my second year, guys like Donnie Blackman, uh, Andre Tippett, uh, Steve Nelson, linebackers, 
uh, John Hanna, guys like that, Brian Holloway, they start, they won't talk to me. They won't, they, they didn't talk to me my rookie year. And then now it's the beginning of my second year. They're not really saying much to me. I'm like, dude, what? I went up to Andre and asked Andre. I said, Andre, how come you don't talk to me, man? We're from New Jersey. What's up? What did I do to you? He said, you play 16 games, then I'll talk to you. That's what he said. Really? <laughs> that was their mentality. Well, you play 16 games, then I'll talk to you. And, and so I they get, were tough guys. Right. And, and I get that, too. I mean, it, it's different nowadays. You see it on the NFL side. I see it on Major League Baseball side. At 2022, it's not 1984 anymore. And even right, for me, right. when I was getting to the big leagues, it was 1990. There was still a little bit of yes. that. Hey, this young, brash kid, let, right. let you prove to me that you right. belong here. That's and right. We'll ingratiate ourselves to you. It wasn't as harsh as your your treatment, but I know what you're saying. I mean, back yeah. then, it's like. Hey, I don't care about all the first round pick, this and that. You show me that you're a big leaguer. As soon as you right. show me you're a big leaguer, we'll give you we'll give you a place on our bus. We'll let you right. sit. We won't make you sit in the front row. We'll let you maybe sit six feet, six feet, uh, <laughs> you know, six seats back in the bus. Right, uh, right. But you, but it's kind of an earning your stripes thing. Different now, different nowadays. I mean, you see a lot of the rookies kind of running the roost like we can do anything we want. And I'm like, this guy hasn't even done anything yet. And look how he's behaving it, just the well, way it is now. Well, these days, it's, it's it's even worse than that. It's almost as if the players tell the coaches in some instances it's as the players tell the coaches <laughs> what to do or the or the players have to yield to. I mean, the coaches have to yield to the players. It's almost like the players have the authority over the coaches in some instances. I mean, and I, 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 and I think that's the financial, the way that the, the yeah. fiscally yeah. sports are now you, I mean, you got a quarterback now making 50 million and you got a, maybe a, not a veteran coach, but, but you know, a, a two or three year tenured coach making, uh-huh. making a million dollars and he's got right. a $50 million court. Who's going to win that argument? That, that that quarterback making that fifty million plus, <laughs> exactly. Plus, he's got the owner on his side as well. The, of the, course, the that's why. That, right, that's my investment. Lose. Yeah, that's my investment right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, Nineteen eighty-five. You're a Pro Bowler. Your first Pro Bowl, uh, and you go to one of the biggest Super Bowls ever. I mean, this is the. And let me talk to the audience here. This is the pre-Belichick era. This isn't the Patriots uh, that we know today. You're starting, but. Man, I remember as a little kid watching that. It was the Super Bowl shuffle, and it yeah. was McMahon with his sunglasses in the fridge. It yeah. kind of all goofy stuff, but it ended up being still to this day. Uh, even the casual football fan remembers the Bears in 1985. Take me through your first Super Bowl. Uh, man, it had to be something. You've been to Orange Bowls, but this yeah. is the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was. Um, you know what? We made a real big deal out of that. We we played well uh to get to the Super Bowl. We were a wild card uh team, so we had to win three games on the road, one being against the Raiders, and uh we went out and we did that. We were playing really well. And uh you know, probably like a year or so ago, I was watching TV and um just happened to see that Super Bowl uh being played again on TV. So I watched it. And um man, we just we made I think because we made such a big deal out of you, you know, as I know, the bigger the game, the the more you want to see that big game as just a regular game. You want to approach it just like you did all the other games. You don't want to put anything extra into it, particularly uh, emotionally and psychologically. You want to go out and be able to play free 
so that you can uh, use your athletic ability as you've always had and the way you did to get to that point. And we were so tight because, you know, coach didn't let us out. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. It's a Super Bowl. You know, make sure this is right. Make sure that is right. Stay in. All that. We, we were uptight. We were really uptight uh, when we got out in the field. And we made a lot of mistakes. When you go back and you watch that game, I don't remember all. I didn't remember all those mistakes after the game. But when you go back and watch it, we were throwing the ball places. We, we weren't commonly throwing the ball. Fumbling dropping interceptions uh it was just we were made we made a lot of mistakes and we had some opportunities early in that game to at least make the game close but um man that that those bears were tough back then like you said you know jim mcmahon and you got the refrigerator walter payton played in that game he didn't finish the game but he played in that game that those were some icons that uh, I'm, I'm privileged to have been on the field at the same time with, though it's not a good memory for me. <laughs> like you said, a lot of people remember that Super Bowl. Um, I did catch it. I'm the first Patriot in the history of the Patriots to catch a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl. So I'm the one that scored. So I have I have that to uh, to cherish and to uh, hold on to as a good memory. The 86 year. um you go back to the playoffs and you lose to the Broncos. I this is this is just a personal thing for me. Was Tony Franklin the kicker on that team? <laughs> yeah, because you know, I, and I'll tell you a dork story. Tony was in Philly, right? Wasn't Tony? Tony, in Philly? I, I'm telling you, as a kid, Irving, I'm growing up, and it was the Sixers, obviously the Phillies, uh-huh. and the Eagles. So I'm a Herm Edwards guy. I'm a Bill Berge, right? Jack Lamaster, Jaws was was yeah. the uh, quarterback. I'm trying to think uh, Wilbert Montgomery Wilbur in the back. Montgomery, yes, oh, man. and it was oh, Julius man. Irving. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. um, oh, all those guys. Oh, Andrew Dow, Dow Dawkins, Daryl Dawkins. Yeah. Andrew Tony was my yeah. guy that I would, that I would, I thought I shot like him and he had that kind of that goofy two hands uh, jump shot. I was right. always Andrew Tony when I was a right. little kid, you know, yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm him, but I'll tell you the goofy thing is that it used to drive my friends crazy. Cause I like to kick. When I was a kid, I played soccer at first and I played football, but we'd play those backyard games, you know, two hand touch. Right. Right. But whenever we scored a touchdown, I had this field goal post in my backyard and I had to kick the extra point. Now we're in seventh, seventh, eighth grade. And, and, uh-huh. and, when, and when you score a touchdown, you don't kick the extra point. Come on. Get, no, get the ball back to us. Go for but, two, yeah. But it was my backyard, and I had to kick because I was Tony Franklin. Tony Franklin. Did you so take your shoe off? I would take my shoe off in the dead of winter. <laughs> it's freezing cold, and my buddies are looking at me, rolling their eyes like, yeah, wow. Brett's, Brett's got to kick the extra point because he's Tony Franklin. Wow. I saw that, and I had to ask you about him because, yeah, he was one of those kids. We all have guys when we're growing up that we look to, and it was for me, it was that Tony Franklin, Wilbert, <clears throat> Andrew Tony on the basketball yeah, side and yeah. then baseball. I kind of liked the ball. I just kind of, right, they right. were my buddies more than anything. Well, Tony uh, Franklin was a good cat, man. Everybody liked him. He got along with, well with everyone. I can't remember a time where we were disappointed in him. You know, one of my philosophies and I, I, I acquired this philosophy, obviously playing with the old school old heads. Um, don't ever leave the game in the hands of the kicker. And because if he if we never blamed him, if he ever missed a kick that could have won the game for us, we blamed ourselves. We never should have put him or ourselves in that position to where he had to kick the ball to win the game. The game's not won 
in the air with the ball going through the goal uh, field goal post. The game is won in the trenches, and that's where we need to. That's where we need to take care of our business. So if we have taken care of, care of our business, it never would have gotten to that point. So we never got mad at the kicker. Uh, kicker, I I still to this day I look at kickers. I'm like, well, they might be like the most, especially in today's game, they might be the most important person down there because they're always. It's it seems like it's always on the line yeah. in the end, yeah. and they and they're either the greatest, the toast of the town, or you better go hide, like Aaron, the, like my brother. That, <laughs> you gotta that, go yeah, hide, right? Yeah, <laughs> was it was a guy from Buffalo? His name was I want to say his name was Norwood. Yes, that was on the Buffalo Bills when the Bills went in the nineties. They went to the Super Bowl four, four years times, in a yeah. Row, and he missed one of those field goal, those extra points or field goals. He, I, I saw a uh, clip on him, and it was recently. And he says he still gets threats. From oh people. man, yeah, it's unbelievable. People still threaten him. <laughs> it was, it's unreal. You played in New England from eighty four to ninety two, and uh, you got traded to Miami. Yeah. Um, Best we thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, we talked about it on on your your podcast, Friar Place, that you kind of were, and, and maybe you were kidding, but maybe you were serious. You were always like, hey, you got to get me over in Miami. Tell me, tell me about that and how it all came to fruition in the end. Well, um, you know, again, being young and I was, you know, early in my career, I, I was doing some stupid stuff off the field. So, um, you know, I was making some headlines, particularly early on, I was making more headlines off the field than I was on the field. Um, but it got to a point for me in New England where I, I really just didn't want to not not because I wanted to go and catch ball somewhere else. I just wasn't happy there. I wanted to leave New England. So maybe my fourth or fifth year uh, there is when I really started, uh, you know, seeking a job elsewhere. I wasn't doing anything necessarily outwardly, but inwardly in my mind, I was ready to go. Um, so about that time, you know, playing for New England, being in the AFC East, uh, we would always play Miami twice a year. Uh, the last game of the season would be down in Miami. And at some point earlier in the year, we'd play them at home. And about my fifth year in the league, uh, I started going up to uh, Coach Shula, not knowing that this was going to actually take place, going up to Coach Shula after the game, shaking his hand and saying, Coach, you got to get me out of here. And he would laugh. <laughs> God rest his soul. He would laugh. I'm like, Coach, I'm serious. And I was serious, but I wasn't serious. You know, I didn't think anything would ever matriculate from it but um, or develop from it, but it did. Uh, and I did that for several years. I played another four years, and every every game, twice a year, I go up to Coach Shula after the game, shake his hand, how you doing, Coach? You got to get me out of here. <laughs> so, and, it, and it worked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when the coaching changed, I, I can't ever remember that coach. He was from, coach for the Giants. I can't ever remember his name. Not Belichick. Um when Bledsoe came in, um, oh, I forget. Yeah, I know. They guy. all run. They all run yeah. together. I can't. For me. I can't ever remember his name. I don't know why, but I can't. Anyway, there was a coaching change, and he came in and he made a statement uh, in the newspaper that anybody who did not want to play for him, he would trade him. So the next day, I was in his office. Well, his name will come to me in a minute. Uh, the next day, I was in his office, and um, you know, we had a conversation. He said, "Listen, if I can get a first round." For first rounder for you and something else, the so first round is something else, then I'll I'll trade you. Uh, we called Miami. My agent called Miami, and my agent called Dallas. Miami jumped all over it, um, and next couple of days we were down in Miami. Dallas Dallas was jumping all over it. I guess they just didn't pull the trigger quick enough. 
but we didn't end up going to Dallas, which would have been a better move because it could have been Irving and Irvin. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a couple Super Bowl rings, maybe. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I ended up in Miami and, and Coach and I embraced. And uh, it was it was a great time for me down there. I really began to blossom. I really began to flourish. I really learned how to be an NFL wide receiver under under that tutelage down there with that offensive uh, scheme. It was it was it was unbelievable to me. I had no idea that playing wide receiver in the NFL was like that. What made Marino different? I mean, all, obviously, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Um, and coming from from, like you said, in in New England, it, it was a different ball game. They, right, they didn't right. pass the ball. Now you're going to maybe the most prolific passer at the time to date. Uh, right. What made him so much different? Well, um, in New England, um, when we would call a play in the huddle, we break the huddle. If it was a passing play or running play, whatever it was, we, we didn't have audibles. There was no audible. If they just if the defense just so happened to be in the right set to stop that offensive play, we would just take that one as a loss, chalk it up as a loss, and move to the next play. There were there was no audibling. There was no changing the plays at the line of scrimmage. We just did not do that. Um, Dan Marino, much like, and I don't know who else was doing it. I don't know if they were doing it out in Frisco with uh, you know Joe Montana if they were doing that kind of stuff or not. I just know we didn't do it in New England. When I got to Miami, Dan Marino was like the quarterbacks we have that you see today. He's at the line of scrimmage. He's making checks. He's doing different stuff. And I had no clue that football was played that way. It, I mean, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I did, that's just not, I didn't do that in Nebraska and I didn't do that for nine years in New England. So so the best story I can give you uh, to, to paint the right picture about that is this. The first, uh, I think it was like the maybe the first or second game of the season. It was early in the season. So now we're, we're at home. I'm in Miami and we're playing the Patriots the team I just left. Um, first half of the game, I didn't catch a ball. The second half, second half of the game, I caught five balls, 211 yards, and three touchdowns. The last touchdown was our last play on offense. We are down in the score. There's like 45 seconds left on the clock. We have no more timeouts left. I believe we're on. We're too far out for a field goal, and I think we were down by more than a field goal, so we needed a touchdown. So we're fourth and five, and I think we're on our own 45-yard line. And we need the five yards, otherwise the game is over. So Dan calls a play in the huddle. We have trips to the left, and I'm split out to the right by myself. Dan comes up to the line of scrimmage. He doesn't, do it. He doesn't give an audible because he would give hand signals as audibles as well as articulate uh, audibles verbally. Um, he comes up. And he looks at me real quick. It's, it's real quick. Nobody notices it. If you watch the film today, you won't see it. He gives me the hand to, for a go, a fly pattern, a streak. And uh, bang, snap the ball. I take off. He throws it. It's a touchdown. We win the game. That That's when I was like, yeah, I like this. This is not fair. You mean to tell me he can come up to the line of scrimmage and just give me a signal and it's just throwing catch with he and I? Yeah, that was... That was special. That that's when the cover came off for me. That's when I really knew that uh, I was in a special place and I was going to be able to do all I had to do was stay healthy. I would be able to do special things. Ninety three and ninety four uh, pro bowler 
both years. Uh, you went to the playoffs in 94 and 95. Uh, you got any particular, because for me, uh, uh, just a fan of, of sport in general, there's certain guys that I look at and, and it's almost, they're just icons, you know, uh, Shula, Shula is one of those guys. Right. It just out. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's Don Shula. You know, it's yeah. different. It, it's uh, yet any, any just a quick story on Shula. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and again, this, this is a test or testament to me just being ignorant about how to be a wide receiver in Miami. So when I first get there, I'm there. Um, and by the way, they they had just built a brand new facility, the facility that they're in now. I was there the when that facility opened was my first year there. But before that, they were in some kind of junior college or something like that. They were in facilities that were not that were less than most colleges. I don't know how they were so successful, you know, practicing and watching film in those facilities, but it was not, it was not what I was used to. And when I first went down there for the first couple of mini camps, before we started training camp, we started training camp in the new facility. So we were in the old facility before that in the mini camps, my first mini camp there, we go out in the field and you know, I'm running plays, man. I'm boom, boom, boom. I'm all over the place. Just smoking them. Just same way I was doing when I was in New England. Smoking the DBs, <laughs> running all over the place, just flying all over the place. And Shula comes up to me. He says, Urban, what, what are you doing? I'm like, coach, what do you mean what I'm doing? He said, what are you doing? Why are you running so fast? I said, that's what I do. I run fast. I'm smoking these cats, these DBs, just like I was when I was in New England. What do you mean? Now I got, damn, I'm smoking them. And here's what Don Shula told me. And this freaked me out. He said, Stop running so fast. You don't have to run so fast. Take your time. He said, take your time. Now, mind you, I'm in New England. They're telling us you got to hurry up and get open. Raymond Berry would have a clock in practice. If a pass play went past two and a half seconds, they considered it a sack. So we had a timer in practice in New England where you had to hurry up and get open. Shula says, take your time. Set your guy up. The offensive line has to block. Dan's got to step up, make somebody miss, and get you the ball. I'm like, what? I never heard that before. No one's ever told you. mean I can make a move? I can weave a guy? I can set a guy? He's like, yeah. What are you doing? Slow down. I'm like, wow. <laughs> different world. Oh, it was a whole different world. It was a whole different world. It just was unbelievable. Now, just real quick, uh, and I don't remember her name. I'll call her Mrs. Shula. But Coach Shula got married while I was there. He, I don't know if he was married before or if, he re, if it was his second marriage or first marriage, whatever. But he got married while I was there. And um, anytime she came around, you know, he's a tough coach, tough guy. That's a tough guy. Anytime she would come around, man, that cat would melt. He turned into a big pussycat <laughs> and you'd see him smile. He starts smiling and walk up to her and he turned, he turned into this whole different guy, which was unbelievable to me. Cause he was, a, he's a tough guy. You, we see Don Shuley got the stern chin and you know, you see the, the pictures of him and whatnot. He's the old school, perfect season. And, all, and that guy would turn into a marshmallow when his wife came around. And that was just, that was just admirable for me that he loved that woman like that. Yeah, and see a human side of it. Yeah, this guy yeah. you kind of put on a pedestal. Like, That's Don Shula. Like you said, yep. perfect season. Yeah. Uh, he's got 
you know, he's got no chinks in the arm. And then all of a sudden you see those chinks like, oh, wow, he's a little he's a little baby he was, when she's he around. Was putty, he was putty in her hands, putty in her hands. <laughs> practice, practice slowed down when we when she came around. Uh, he spoke nicely to players when she came around. <laughs> he turned into a whole different guy. <laughs> After the 95 C, you're a free agent. You're coming on home. You go back to Philly. Uh, playing for Ray Rhodes, and I was looking at it. was interesting. Uh, Rodney Pete uh, has been on the program. He was a teammate of mine uh, in college. He was my third baseman. That's he, right. He, he, he played football. USC, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he played football, you know, and I go to SC as a freshman. And, uh, you know, SC, yeah, it's baseball. It's got a lot of national championships. But let's be honest. When you go to University of Southern California, it's a football school. It's football, all about yeah. football. And at the time, Rodney was the man. He was a quarterback in the All-American and uh, winning Rose Bowls. And, and they said, well, you know, I'm a freshman and they're, I'm playing second base. He said, well, yeah, Pete's our third baseman. I'm like, the guy, the guy that I go watch on Saturdays, you know, he was a big man on campus. I remember he came out. Rodney was a big, he was a big uh, teddy bear too once, once I got to know. He was actually a really good baseball player. I think he could have been a big leaguer if he pursued that. But wow. he he's one of the guys that always told me, he said, Brett, football was my passion. It's what I love. Baseball was fine. Because uh, Rodney would have probably been a first-round pick baseball wise if he mm -hmm. pursued it but wow. he would just kind of play the football season uh wouldn't work out with us right before baseball season he'd pop out there like a week before next thing you know he's he, he's an all-american baseball wise and i'm going wow. this guy if he actually put the time in he, he was just really talented guy anyway uh ray rhodes is your head coach ty detmer is the uh is the quarterback at the time when you joined philly how was that coming home for you well that was great um I talked to um, I actually talked to John Gruden the other day. He was the offensive coordinator uh, back then. I remember a conversation that I had with him more so than with Ray when I was signing and shout out to Troy Vincent. Uh, let me say that real quick because Troy had already signed. He was down in Miami with me defensive back. He had just signed uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles and he spoke on my behalf to those to the coaches or to whomever it was he was talking to. And Troy actually gave me a call. You want to come here to Philly? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because Jimmy Jones uh, had just took over the head coaching job. I played Shulers last year. Coach Jones came and took over the head coaching job in Miami. I didn't want to play for him. So uh, I wasn't going back to Miami. So when Troy called, I, I, I immediately said yes and went up to see if they were interested. And they were. And uh, John Gruden, one, one of the first things John Gruden said to me, said, listen, and, and it wasn't like I was injury prone. I played most plays. You know, I played 95% of the offensive plays in my career um, that the offensives, offensive snaps. Um, John Gruden said to me, well, you can't get hurt. <laughs> he said, the first, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> I wasn't thinking about getting hurt, Gruden. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, it's not, if I do get hurt, it's not on purpose. Okay, coach? <laughs> right. But, um, but yeah, Ty was the quarterback. And Rodney, Rodney also, I mean, they kind of split time during my time there. They kind of split time. I think I, I, Ty may have played a little bit more than Rodney, but they, they were back and forth, uh, really couldn't figure out who was going to start. Um, but, yeah, I played – You know, I have the record for playing or catching balls from the most quarterbacks uh, of anybody in the history of the league. I, I played 17 years, and I caught balls from 19 different quarterbacks. And like you said about Rodney, Rodney, out of all the quarterbacks, even Dan Marino – Rodney's ball Rodney threw the hardest ball 
Rodney could throw that football, man. Rodney Pete, he was unbelievable. Give you a little story of playing the Giants one day. We're up in the Meadowlands, and uh, Rodney's quarterbacking, and I guess it's third and like five again. And we gotta we gotta have the five yards. The game is on the line. We don't get the five yards. We're gonna lose one of those scenarios again. And Rodney looks at me in the huddle. He says, "Irving, I'm throwing you the ball no matter what." <laughs> so okay, no problem. And we're running the slant route. So you know, there's a whole lot of bodies in there when you run those slant routes. That's the they call that the man route for wide receivers. If you can run a slant, catch a slant, get hit, then okay, you're legit. But uh, not a lot, not a lot of guys can run in there and catch that ball on a consistent basis, running that slant and getting hit. And it was a different type of football back then. Um, so to me, I thought it, it, everybody in the stadium kind of knew I was going to get the ball because I was I was the number one receiver, and when when we needed to have it. They came to me with the ball. So everybody on the Giants, they knew it. They knew it. Rodney said, I'm throwing it no matter what. Guess what? They're in the perfect defense to stop the slant. I run the slant. Rodney squeezes it between the linebacker, the defensive end, and the corner. I mean, the linebacker and the corner drop. I mean, not drop. The, the, the defensive end drop and the linebacker on that side drop. And the corner's coming in. He's collapsing. And all four of us meet at the same place. Bang! I catch the ball. Jesse Armstead knocked the crap out of me. My helmet came off. My wife at the time thought uh, my head. (laughs) And remember, Gruden Gruden told you don't get hurt. So you got to remember that. Yeah, yeah. I actually broke my hand on that play. But I caught the ball. uh, But Rodney almost got me killed, man. He he shouldn't have threw that ball to me. He should have threw it on the other side. But he threw it to me. I caught it. I got smacked. My helmet came off. Only time my helmet ever came off getting hit. And uh, I, I still got the first down. Got up, gave the first down sign. Had to go off for a minute because my helmet was broken. I couldn't put my helmet back on my head. They actually broke my helmet. Um, but yeah, Rodney tried to kill me. He'll ask him about that. If you ever see him or talk to him again, which I'm sure you will, ask him about the time he almost got Irving Fryer's head taken off. <laughs> I will, and, and you know, the weird thing about it is that's because you say he threw the hardest ball. Do you know on base on the baseball field, he didn't. Because I'm thinking, all right, we got Rodney Pete playing third base. He's got a cannon. Right. He right. didn't have a cannon. Really? He really? was throwing on a double play. I'm surprised pl- at that. I'm surprised yeah, at on that. On a double play ball from third base to second to first, he would throw me a spiral. <laughs> but it wasn't like one of the, his attributes that w- that ranked really high. Like, you know, in baseball for the scouting report, they'll, they'll, there's five uh, different columns and it's ranked one through eight. Eight okay. is the ultimate. And right. they always have arm strength. You know, average big league arm strength of five. Right. I'd say Rodney would have been probably a four plus. Wow. From a quarterback. That's, that's a, it, it just didn't transcend to baseball. Maybe he was just trying to make sure the ball went where he was trying to throw it. Yeah, but it was different. It was really like he was throwing me with a football grip. And I'd look at him and be like, Rodney, I've never got a feed with that type of spin on it. He goes, oh, I don't know. That's just how I throw. I said, well, throw it. it makes sense. It makes yeah. and, and you know what? That brings up a great point. You said that particular season, Ty was maybe the number one, but it seemed like Rodney was playing just as much as a wide receiver going into that week. Did it make a difference to you? Because I think the average fan will just think it doesn't matter. Just go do your job. Doesn't matter who's quarterback. And oh, yes, it does. And did that affect how the outlook for you, who was who was going to be the quarterback that week? Or was it something or no, I just have a job to do and let them do their job? 
Um, I think it eventually got to that for me in terms of I have a job to do, let them do their job. Um, particularly if you had, and I played with a guy named Jeff Carlson. I played with a couple of other left-handers uh, because the ball spins the other way when you're catching the ball from a left-hander. So, you know, that can mess with your mind or mess with you as a wide receiver. Uh, whether a guy's punting a ball, the ball spins one way when he's a right-footed punter, it spins the other way when he's a left-footed punter. So what are you going to do? You got to, here, here's the, here's the, and I think maybe because I played with so many different quarterbacks, I just eventually developed this mentality so that it didn't bother me and it didn't matter. The ball is the ball. It's made out of the same thing. It's the same size. Doesn't matter who's throwing it. It doesn't matter which way it's spinning. Catch it. Yeah, just catch it. Catch it. My my father, my, I got that philosophy from my father. My father didn't teach me a whole lot of stuff. One of the things my father taught me was when you go out of the house, make sure you wear a hat. That's one of the That's <laughs> one right. And, 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 and catch it. And, get, and one of the things he told me, I, we're, my dad was a bowler, and um, I would go with him when he was bowling. He would have me back when the machines didn't keep the score for you. You had to actually write it down on paper to keep score. He taught me how to keep score. And uh, so I was bowling with him one particular day. Ball kept going in the gutter, going in the gutter. My ball going in the gutter. I looked at my dad. I said, Dad, why my ball keep going in the, in the gutter? He said, because that's where you're throwing it. My makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> Just Without a doubt. So my dad told me when I was a kid, when he was my coach at seven years old, he said, listen, when the ball comes over the plate and it's in your strike zone, hit it. Doesn't matter who's throwing it. Doesn't matter which direction it's coming from. It's got to, it's got to come over the plate and it's got to come in your strike zone. When it does, hit it. He was he was plain and simple like that. And it yeah, make, it, it makes sense. Keep it simple. Yeah, just keep it simple. So I took that same philosophy. It doesn't matter. The ball is still the ball. The ball doesn't change. It may be spinning right or left, but it's still the same material. It's still the same size. When it comes to me, catch it. Doesn't matter who's throwing it. Yeah, so I, de I developed that over over time. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we all had our druthers, you know, there there's certain guys that, man, I love when he's pitching. That ball looks like a grapefruit coming right, in. And other right. guys, it look like a pea. But that doesn't – I don't get to choose. Uh, right, right. You know, the, the only – the only thing I think that's relevant to the situation quarterback wide receiver for me, I, obviously a pitcher catcher. I was never a pitcher, so I don't know that relationship. Uh -huh. Obviously, it's an important one for me. It was my double play partner in the middle. You know, okay, I was a right. second baseman right. and this is back when you could slide and, and most guys were trying to kill me at second base. Take me out. Uh, it was important. Uh, right to have somebody that I was on the same wavelength. I had Barry Larkin for five years in Cincinnati and we were yin and yang. I mean, it was, it was almost like we knew where each other were. It was kind of a, I, I don't mind, mean to get, you know, goofy, but mm -hmm, it, it mm -hmm. kind of like I could close my eyes, throw it and Barry was there and vice right. versa. And right, I don't know right. why we had that relationship, but we did other parts of my career. You know, I had three or four, other shortstops that I had to learn to work with. Okay. And it, I never had that relationship again that I had with Barry. I mean, we just were kind of built for each other in the middle and the other guys were really good. They're big league shortstops, but it was different for me. And, right. and I had to make adjustments. And it's, it, it's the same. There, there are quarterbacks that I play with that I prefer. Trust me. <laughs> right, I, right. Without a doubt. And there's, there's some that I play with that I prefer not to play with. <laughs> right. But, but because of that, you know, I had to 
to to to make that uh, to to put myself in that mindset that it doesn't matter who's throwing it, catch it. Um, but yeah, I, I prefer to play with Dan. I prefer to play. I do. I prefer not to play with Jeff Carlson uh, or or Bobby Hoing. Bobby Hoing almost got me killed. Um, there was a few guys that yeah that were they were not Steve Grogan. Loved to catch his ball. Loved loved to play with him. Prefer to play with him. So yeah, I but but because there's a difference, like you're saying, there's the difference in the chemistry. There's a difference in how the ball the ball flight. I caught a ball from Warren Moon one time at the Pro Bowl. And all the all the receivers he ever threw a ball to should never drop one of his balls. His ball is so friendly. I didn't know that there was a difference when he throws the ball. Almost like it's almost like butter melting in your hands. I, I and it had velocity on it. It got there. It was on time, but it ju- it was just soft when it hit my hands. Unbelievable that he he throws the best ball I caught from anybody. That's Warren Moon. Um, but I didn't know there was a difference. Um, so yeah, there's some that I prefer, but I had to make sure that, that, uh, when I was with someone, I didn't prefer, make sure I had the mentality. Okay. It's just the ball. Catch the ball. It doesn't matter who's throwing it. That's interesting. You bring up Warren, uh, when I had him on and, and ever since then, uh, the football players, the wide receiver, Warren Moon's name and, and explained similar <laughs> really? to how you just explained it. Wow. It comes up quite a bit like, man, Warren Moon. It may be the best. And I don't know. I don't know how it's, uh, you know, I'm a layman baseball player here. So I'm trying to be footballish. Uh-huh. But, they, but in a sense, they'd say he throws an unbelievable, maybe he threw the best ball of all time. Right. I've heard that quite a bit in the football in the football world. I can't explain it. I don't know what he does or what he did with the ball. It still was a spiral. It still came off his hands like, you know, most quarterbacks off the finger. T- I, I don't know what exactly what it was, but man, when I the first time I caught his ball, I'm like, wait a minute, what was that? This is different. That was yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm like, that's throw me the ball again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, after the 90, you're a pro bowler in 96, 97 in, in Philly. Uh, and tell me after 98, you kind of retire, then you unretire <laughs> and you end up finishing your, your career up with Washington. Yeah. What went into that? Cause I had a similar experience after 95, uh, I signed with the Mets, I retired and then uh, I took a year off and I ended up coming back ironically with the Washington nationals. Mm-hmm. I went to spring training. Uh, I went off and I, and I played in the minor leagues for two weeks to see if I really wanted to do this again, ended up, uh, I ended up retiring officially. Then I needed to do it for me at the, at that time in my life. I just needed some, some closure. closure yeah. And yeah. Uh, I got that. I got as prepared as I could when uh-huh. I came back, you know, they called it a comeback. It, it was uh, 2008. <laughs> And I remember walking away for the final time and people say, man, you you did all that work this offseason. You were the best shape you'd been in. And and I said, I had to do that because it, it now I can walk away and I've got no questions. I can look in the mirror and know it was the right time for me. I'm not the player I used to be. So I'm really glad and thankful that I got that opportunity to to. Fl- to get ready as good as I can come back and realize, no, it's over. Right. Uh, it gave me some closure. Tell me your story after the 98 year and, and the, how you ended up playing another two. Yeah. Th- there's a little, there's a few similarities in my story. Um, as far as, you know, the closure part, um, that, that definitely, uh, holds true with me. Um, my, when I was with Philadelphia, um, I played three years, my third year, um, the second game of the season, I broke my big toe. I broke the sesamoid bone 
in my big toe. Um, that same year uh, was when uh, John Gruden left. They brought an offensive coordinator in by the name of Dana Bible. We were absolutely horrible. Dana Bible had no clue what was going on. Halfway through the season, Dana Bible was demoted. They didn't tell the press or tell the media or the public that he was demoted, but he stopped coming one Wednesday morning and he's not doing installation. Uh, Musgrave, guy by the name of Musgrave, is doing the installation. It was his first time. He had to stop and apologize to us because he had never done it before and he just couldn't get it out. He couldn't <laughs> he couldn't tell us what the new plays were. It was, and I knew we just went, we had just gone from from bad to worse. It was it was a tough year for me, and uh, but I'm playing with this broken toe. They told me, the trainers told me that um, it was turf toe. Come to find out, at the end of the season when I went to a doctor on my own that I had that broken sesamoid bone. Actually, Deion Sanders had the same injury that same year, and he missed the whole year. I kept getting shots in my big toe before the games, um, numbing it up. I mean, it was it was absolutely. But I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything to the media. I didn't say anything. Really, I didn't say anything to my coach. I just, I was older and I didn't, you know, you've got a paranoid uh, attitude or mentality when you get older that they're going to just, you know, do away with you. They're going to cut you, let you go. So I didn't want any, (laughs) I didn't want that to happen. So I was concerned about that. So I didn't say anything. Although I probably should have because I wasn't as effective. Plus, the team wasn't good. I was pressing and making mistakes. It just it wasn't a good year. So about three quarters of the way through that year, and my plan when I came to Philadelphia was to play that contract out and to retire. But I had another year to go after that year. So about halfway through, three quarters of the way through that year, Tom Modrak, the the, uh, general manager, pulled me to the side and he said, listen, um, not playing well. We, you know, just don't have, he actually said this, you don't have it anymore. We're going to cut you at the end of the season or you can retire. You retire. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll do this. We'll do that. So my wife at the time, and I talked it over with her, um, decided to retire. That's not when I wanted to retire, but, um, it was, it was just a rough, rough time. So I ended up announcing a retirement. They give me a motorcycle it's supposed to be good. Everything's supposed to be good. But I still have that, you know, the 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 dog is not asleep. He's still awake. He's not gone to bed. Uh, he's still outside the cage. And I was restless. So I prayed and I asked the Lord, I said, well, listen, if if someone asks or, or offers this, that, and the other, then I know that's where I need to go. In the meantime, I had gone down, back down to Miami got my toe worked on, found out that that bone was broken, got my toe repaired and uh, was kind of, you know, working out, trying to get my my foot together just so I could function on a daily basis. In the meantime, Washington calls me um, and I told Washington, I told, told Coach Turner, North Turner, I said, listen, I haven't done anything. I had surgery on my toe. I haven't run. I don't even know if I can run. Um, he said, don't worry about it. Just come down here. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. They they it was right down the road. I didn't really have to make any major adjustments. I could take my family right down there and um that first training camp was was hell because that toe was man, it was it was hurting. It just hurt a lot because it was freshly cut on and I had not rehabbed it. Um so that first part of that year was was tough. Um but I needed that. I needed that year and the next year to um to get that bad taste out of my mouth 
to prove that I could still play to myself, to Tom Modrak, to the Eagles. And uh, I actually didn't want to retire when I retired. Um, uh, forget who the coach's name was that came in, but there was a coach that came in, um, Schottenheimer. Schottenheimer came in. Uh, North Turner got fired my second year. Um, and Schottenheimer came in the third year, and he asked me to come back and play. And I told him no because I didn't want to play for him. I just knew some things about him that – he and I weren't going to see eye to eye and I wasn't going to be treated like a rookie after I played 17 years. Um, that off season, John Gruden called me and asked me to come out to the Raiders and catch punts. He said uh, it was about halfway through the season. They needed a punt returner. He just wanted me to catch punts. He would pay me the uh, minimum, but I didn't go. Um, I felt, I felt like I was done. Uh, I felt like I needed to be home with the family. My oldest son was in high school and, um, I, th- I felt like I needed to be around. So I made the decision not to go and play. I don't think I was done. Matter of fact, I know I wasn't done. I probably had another couple, maybe three years, productive years to play. I probably could have played 20 years, um, but I decided to shut it down. I gotten that nasty taste out of my mouth from Tom Modrak coming to me and telling me I wasn't you know, capable of playing or capable of being productive anymore as a receiver. And I was able to get that out and work that out of my system down in Washington. That time came, you did retire. Uh, for me, you know, I'll, although I, I shared earlier, I had closure. I did as an athlete uh, when I walked away from the game. Finally, in, in 2008, I had no reservations. I knew I didn't want to go back. I was a shell of the player I was. Um, but I didn't. It wasn't easy for me, you know, because my whole life, I just I grew up in the game. And then I played the game. And when you're playing, as you know, we're all kind of invincible and and we'll just do this forever. And all of a sudden, one day when it's over, I was looking around, you know, I, I, I had a really, really good career and, and made a lot of money and thought, well, I'll just go off to the sunset and party and go on vacation all the time. And, and you find yourself <laughs> a couple of years later looking around going, who the hell am I? Yeah, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. What am I going to do now? So it was a. Yeah. Uh, it was a little bit of a tougher uh, uh, thing for me. Like I, I fought with it for years and years. Of course. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I see some of my buddies walk away from the game and they're, they're happy as can be. This is great. They made that transition and it was perfect. I've seen some of my buddies go through what I went through and it was a struggle uh, when I retired. It wasn't easy because it was, you, you got it because it is when we're playing, it's, it's our whole persona. It's who we are. Right, We're, right. And, and once you walk away from the game, it's no, it's what I did. That's, right. It's not the man I am, but I've been so wrapped up in this persona for so long. I got, I got to learn how to function in life without, without having this, this caricature of I'm this guy, this, this Bugs Bunny figure when you're really right. not. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, how was that when you finally decided I'm walking away? Was it an easy transition? Did you go off in the sunset? No, I didn't go off in the sunset. Um, I did transition. It wasn't necessarily, again, I still felt like I could play or I believed I could play and I probably could have. Um, so that was, that was lingering a little bit. Man, maybe I should have went to the Raiders, you know, maybe, but I, I had something to do. I started uh, getting involved in the media. I did a show down in Atlanta uh, on the weekends uh, for uh, during football season with uh, Bob Lorenz and Trev Alberts uh, with CNNSI. 
And I did that for a year, uh, my first year out. And it was a good show. It was a live show from 9 to 10 in the morning on Sunday mornings. It was fantastic. We had a great job. I was getting ready to sign a, a long-term contract with CNNSI. But then AOL uh, came in and put a monkey wrench, threw a monkey wrench in it, and they bought CNNSI out, and they canceled the show. So then I, um, I started doing uh, some beat reporting uh, with Philadelphia Sports uh, for W uh, W I not yeah W not W I P uh, W P V I Channel Six Action News here in Philly. Action, action News I yeah, remember Action that. News yeah, yeah yeah I was I was a beat reporter I was doing all the sports Philadelphia uh, Phillies and the Sixers and the Eagles and you know doing high school sports it was fun it was a lot of fun um, and I did that probably for like a year and a half uh, and then they offered me the job of weekend anchor. They wanted me to be the weekend anchor. But in that same frame of time, the Lord spoke and called me to pastor a church. So I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice whether to do the weekend anchor or pastor the church. I couldn't do both because the timing of it wasn't, wouldn't work right. I couldn't, I couldn't, I would have to neglect one in order to do the other and one would suffer and starting a church or starting a new job. You can't, you can't neglect that when you start something new, you have to, you have to be in it. You have to focus. You have to put extra time in it. Yeah. I would have had to put extra time in to being an anchor. I had never been an anchor before, but I would put the time in and learn how to do it and be good at it. But I couldn't do both. And I had to make a choice and uh, I chose to, to pastor. Um, I've been pastoring ever since uh, I wonder now, 19 years later, I should have, no, <laughs> should I have gone and I have a nice little pen, another pension stored up, you know, I'd be just about retiring from then. But, uh, but no, it, it, uh, that, that kind of made it over time, you know, I thought, okay, did I make the right choice? Did I do the right thing? I, I've done the right thing. I know that uh, sometimes when things get a little bit tight or get a little bit rough, we start questioning ourselves and our, our choices and our decisions, but I know I'm, I'm in the will of God and, and doing what I'm supposed to do. I've been doing it for 19 years now, but um, because I had something to do, um, the the pull, the tug, uh, the 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 possible frustration and and being kind of lost in terms of not playing football anymore and being a part of that regiment and and having a routine like I did before, I took a lot of that energy. And put it into what whatever it is I was doing, whether it was pastoring, whether it was doing TV. You know, I studied hard. I put a lot of energy into it, a lot of effort into it. I focused on it. So the same kind of energy and the same uh, attributes that that I have and that are internal that I use to be uh, the best receiver that I could be. I put that into whatever it is I was doing. Um, so because I was busy, as time went on. Um, that whole tug and pull about being frustrated or being lost kind of dissipated and uh, went away and I was all right. But, um, but had I not had anything to do, um, man, it would have been tough. It would have been real tough. Um, but I, but I was okay. I was okay. I didn't, I didn't struggle that much with it. What are you most proud of in your life? I'm most proud of the fact that I have a PhD. Um, I have a, a a bachelor's degree, I have a master's degree, and I have two doctoral degrees. That's what I'm most proud of. Um, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was get that PhD. 
it was I mean I I couldn't read for read anything for like <laughs> six months once I graduated that was but I did it and I did it for several reasons one I promised myself that I would I didn't graduate from Nebraska when I was there uh, because and this is that was just my decision uh, at the end of my senior year I could have gone back to school when the football season was over and graduated finished my classes and graduated so I was only a few credits away from graduating but that's when that whole NFL thing started happening. So I was going to all kinds of banquets and taking trips and being Mr. Fryer, you know, the NFL star, going to be the NFL star. I started doing that so I didn't go back to school and finish up. But I promised myself that uh, at some point, or I said before 50, before you're 50 years old, you're going to have a doctoral degree. Um, so that's one of the reasons. I got my doctoral degree was because I promised myself. And the other one is because of this whole uh, people label athletes, particularly football players as being stupid, particularly black athletes, black football players as being stupid. Like we're like, we are not intelligent and having a degree doesn't make, doesn't mean you're intelligent. Having a degree just means you finish what you start. Um, but I wanted to prove there's certain people that I wanted to prove wrong. Um, that may not be, right or the right reason for doing it but that's one of the reasons I did it um, but that's what I'm most proud of is that I have my doctoral degree when I talk to young people I tell them you call me Dr. Fryer uh, and the reason you call me Dr. Fryer is because I earned it not because I'm trying to be braggadocious or anything like that but that's something that I earned that nobody can take away from me they can say whatever they want about me or they can take whatever they can from me but they can't take that from me and uh, that's that's what I'm most proud of very cool. Um, tell the audience about your, your podcast, The Friar Place. I was on it. It's excellent. Check it out. Uh, tell them where they can find it and uh, how often you do it. Well, The Friar Place is on YouTube. We're live, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. I know you're all the way out there in California, Brett, but we're here on the East Coast. And that's the beauty of of virtuality that's the beauty of technology now wow we can be anywhere in the world and still connect but the friar place is on youtube you go to youtube search the friar place that's f-r-y-a-r e-r is a chicken f-r-y-e-r a-r not e-r uh the friar place search it on youtube and please don't forget to subscribe we're live every friday the friar place is the place where the conversations are fire we have yes former athletes we have current athletes but we have some of everybody we've had therapists we've had financial experts we've had my daughter on before we've had a plethora of people who tell their stories about the challenges of life and the triumphs that follow that's what the fryer place is all about so i appreciate it you guys that are watching if you check me out every friday live 12 noon if you can't get on at 12 noon it's always posted you can always go back and watch it after it posts Irving Fryer, it's been a pleasure, man. This has been a lot of fun walking down memory lane. Yeah, uh, I know, man. You took me back. You took yeah, me back, my friend. I don't, I don't know if I want to remember all that stuff. <laughs> I'm going I'm to have to go have a glass of wine. <laughs> Settle down. Uh, awesome career. Uh, you're doing great things. Uh, congratulations on everything. Uh, and once again, Listeners of the Boone Podcast, go check out the Friar Place. What we do each and every Boone Podcast at the end of the podcast 
is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the moon 29 i'm dan levy bass on air that is base on air all my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one